Welcome to Healthy Voyager Radio. I'll be your host, the Healthy Voyager, Carolyn Scott. Thanks for tuning in to Healthy Voyager Radio. I'm your host, Carolyn Scott Hamilton, the Healthy Voyager. I cannot believe it's November already, and it kind of looks like the holiday season is already in full swing. I think I saw Christmas commercials before Halloween, and as soon as it was like midnight November 1st, it's been Christmas craziness. So it just gets earlier and earlier every year, uh, but I happen to be a holiday nut, so I enjoy it, although I am willing to admit that it can be a little bit overkill and a tad stressful. But what I wanted to chat with you guys about today, um, since my next few shows are all holiday-centric before we take our winter break, um, I want to talk about the basics again. My guests today are kind of here to remind us why I do the show and why you listen to the show. The heart of the message, which is living a healthy and green life both personally as well as outwardly. And I feel that a lot of times the message is garbled due to emotions or even misinformation. Ultimately, the choice to live a healthy and green life the right way not only helps us, but it also benefits those around us as well as the earth itself. If we live every day with intention and reminding ourselves why we need to be deliberate in our actions and our lives and our message, um, they're, they're that much more powerful. No matter your personal reason for leading a healthy or, uh, or green life, and or a green life. Uh, The most important thing we need to do is lead by example. If we want others to learn from us, then we need to present the topic in positive ways. One of the main reasons folks switch to a plant-based diet is compassion and tolerance for those with no voice, which sounds noble, right? Well, many forget that we need to be compassionate and tolerant of our fellow man because if we're judgmental and hostile with them, in, in conveying this message, then the message is diluted and ultimately it's ignored. Um, so we're not really getting anywhere. And even when it comes to those who adopt the lifestyle for health reasons like me, again, leading by example and giving folks options, alternatives, and ideas in a light way is much more effective than belittling decisions um, that they have been making their entire life. You know, Rome wasn't built in a day and most people need time to let the ideas sink in. And some will never get it and that's okay. But for every skeptic, there is a person who learns from you and your actions, and that's very powerful. Um, And, you know, leading by example just proves so much more than just kind of beating down the issue. If you prove that the lifestyle that you live isn't that difficult, in fact, it's great, and it's simpler now than it ever used to be, and that you're still a regular person living in society, and that it's not that much more difficult than, than what they're doing, then people will start to kind of get it. So, you know, be it veganism, be it eco-living, it's all a process. And a process that if we continue to present in a positive way with facts and science to back it up, it will be very tough for people to ignore. I like to say that centuries ago, people thought the world was flat. No one could sway them for centuries until the facts were overwhelming and could no longer be denied. Uh, It takes time and it takes good information, not force, not negativity, not ridicule, And when this shift happens, and I kind of see it happening already, it'll be for the benefit of mankind as well as for the planet. So going into the holiday season, it's something to think about because, as I mentioned, the holidays can be incredibly stressful and we tend to get lost in it. Emotions kind of run pretty high around the holidays and there's a lot of extra time with family and friends. And, you know, if you kind of are living your own life and then you're kind of put back in a situation with family or friends that you haven't seen in a while and things are can be kind of tense. So 
So kind of keep that in mind. So don't forget why you're doing it and, and to keep doing it. And I think that my guest today will be a great reminder for all of us. So let's take a short break. And when we come back, I will be chatting with best-selling author and speaker, John Robbins. Hi, this is Sarah Evans. Did you know that America's most common disaster can often be prevented? I'm talking about home fires. And this holiday season, the American Red Cross wants to help you stop fires before they start. Holiday lights, candles, and trees can increase your risk of fire. Learn how to have a happy and fire-free holiday by visiting www.redcross.org slash homefires or contact your local Red Cross chapter. Welcome back to Healthy Voyager Radio. My first guest is a well-known and well-respected author and speaker with books that really put veganism on the map, such as Diet for a New America and Food Revolution. Here with me now is Mr. John Robbins. Hello, John. Hi, Carolyn. Glad to be with you. Thank you so much. You have such an interesting background. You know, the heir to the Baskin-Robbins empire, you chose to go vegan and walk away from it. Tell us a little bit about how and why you came to that decision. Well, my dad and my uncle owned the company, founded the company and owned it and ran it, and my father groomed me to succeed him. It was his plan that I would one day follow in his footsteps and, and invent a 30-second flavor. And uh, <laughs> and I didn't, you know, I, I lo- growing up, I loved it. I, I ate more ice cream than I care to remember. I um, Actually, sometimes people now learn that I don't eat ice cream anymore, and they feel sorry for me or seem to, and I say, don't, please. I ate enough ice cream in my childhood for 20 lives, and I did, and um, it was a a kind of a fantasy world. We had an ice cream cone-shaped swimming pool in our backyard, and it was, everything was 31, 31, and, and, um, but I began to feel this was not a path I wanted to take in my life. my uncle, Bert Baskin, died of a heart attack in his early 50s. He was a very big man. He ate a lot of ice cream. Um, my father developed diabetes, high blood pressure, um, uh, heart problems, um, you know, real serious health, health outcomes. And um, it's not just Baskin-Robbins. Ben, ben Cohen, a wonderful man who owned and uh, founded and for many years owned, um, co-owned Ben & Jerry's ice cream. Uh, company uh, had a quintuple bypass in his late 40s. Yikes. Um, my point is that ice cream isn't a health food. The more I, the more you eat, the more likely you are to have a heart attack uh, or diabetes or, or many of these other problems. And an ice cream cone isn't going to kill anybody, of course. But the more you eat, the more problems you're going to have. And if I was to follow in my dad's footsteps and make my living through the Baskin Robbins Ice Cream Company, then I would have been wanting people to, that's the name of the game, to eat as much, buy as much as possible. And um, I, I, if I was going to sell a product, I wanted it to be one that contributed to people's well-being, that mm-hmm. served a purpose in their lives that was a healthy one. I did not want to be um, making a living off uh, endangering people's health. To, to me, I, the ice cream business really wasn't all that different than the tobacco business. Um, it provide it sold a product that provided pleasure to people um, that was addictive. Actually, I, I think ice cream is, and to a degree, and um, and it undermines their health. So I, I walked away from it. Um, I said I didn't want to be part of that, and um, 
to be ethically consistent, I also told my dad I did not want to depend on his financial achievements for my life. I didn't want any kind of inheritance or trust fund. I just wanted to live by my own values, um, and I walked away from the money. Wow. That that must have been a tough call. How did your family take it? Were they surprised? Well, my dad was hurt. Mm. You know, I was his only son, so all the weight of his expectations were on me. And okay. um, I understand. You know, he was offering me something that uh, 99.9% of the young men in the country probably would have been delighted to have that opportunity, and yet he gets the one kid that says no. Um uh, you know, it was it was very rough for us. It complicated our relationship a lot. Um, it, it, but in the long run, he and I had a lot of reconciliation in the long run, and um, ended up closer, I think, than than we could have ever been, even if I had just um, followed in the in the uh, with what he had been wanting. Yeah. Were you vegan already at that point, or were you slowly transitioning? I was becoming was vegan it? at that time, um, uh-huh. and that this is. Um, the late 60s, um, so it is quite a few years ago, um, but um, I was becoming vegan then, yes, and I, you know, another piece of it was that uh, in Baskin-Robbins at the time, every store had behind the counter, there were these big murals, beautiful photographs, uh, sepia-toned pictures of Guernsey and some Holstein dairy cows grazing in beautiful Wisconsin pasture land exquisite pictures, really beautiful fo- uh, photos. And But the truth was that Baskin-Robbins was centered in Southern California, uh, Burbank to be precise, and that's where the, the, the principal factory was in, the, in those days. And um, the, the the milk and other, uh, and, and butterfat and all kinds of dairy products that the company used came from California dairies in the San Joaquin Valley where the cows were, as they are today, grazing mainly. They're not grazing at all. They're standing around on dirt in dirt feedlots, and they're milked three times a day, and they hardly move, um, and they never see a blade of grass in their lives. So the, the contrast between the, the bucolic, the beautiful image that was presented in these photo, really large murals in the, on the, in the stores of cows in harmony with nature versus the reality of the cow's lives from whom the milk came that was in the ice cream, actually, was glaring to me. And and um, it, it was marketing, it was advertising, it was effective, it sold product, but to me it was deceitful. And I have a love of animals. I have a very deep love of animal appreciation for them and and a feeling that our you know, I'm not talking about animal rights. I'm talking about human responsibility. We have, I believe, a responsibility to treat the animals that we, we have in our care uh, with respect. And the, the pictures uh, in, on the, in the Baskin-Robbins uh, murals showed animals treated with respect. But the reality was very different, and it is today very different. I'm not speaking just about Baskin-Robbins, of course, but the whole meat and dairy industries. Um, uh, have be uh, the, the factory farming that agribusiness does uh, with livestock. It's it's egregious. You don't have to be a, an animal rights activist. You don't have to be a vegetarian. If you see how uh, cruel it is to be appalled by it. Yeah, it's 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 just it's a visceral response immediately for 
for us, of course, and even for others, it's hard to ignore. And, and that's my point very strongly is that um, you, you don't have to be a vegetarian if you see it, and, but yet people don't see it. The industry mm-hmm. is very, very devoted uh, to keeping the veil in place. And those of us who want to lift the veil so that people can be exposed to the reality, so they can make informed, realistic choices, so they know what they're eating, um, so they can be, be conscious consumers, instead of just be uh, pawns in the, in the meat and dairy industry's games, which they play for profit at your expense, at my expense, at our whole society's expense, and particularly at the animal's expense. Um, I think it's, it's critical that people lift the veil. Yeah, absolutely. And it's at the expense of our health because in order to keep these animals um, disease-free to some degree, you know, they have to pump them with so, all sorts of things. So even, if, even if, if you have a cold heart and you don't care about the animals, you're still ingesting sick stuff. Well, this is, this is a critical point, I think. I, I appreciate you bringing it up. Some people say, well, I have only so much compassion to go around. I'm, I'm suffering from compassion fatigue. You know, I can only care. There's hungry people. There, there's so many ills and problems and suffering in the world. I just don't have enough space to also include animals. You know, that's too bad, but that's how it is. And I said, well, all right. Well, let's say you don't have any ethical concern for animals whatsoever. Uh, or, but still, you, do concern, you have concerns about your health. The fact is that the more cruelly uh, animals are treated in in meat production and dairy production, um, the sicker they get. And the more antibiotics have to be used then to bring them to market. And then that is contributing massively, we know, to the the, the development of antibiotic-resistant bacteria in, in our world, which is undermining the value of our antibiotics, the efficacy of our, of, our, of our antibiotics. So the more cruelly we treat the animals, the more antibiotics are used, the sicker they get, the more antibiotics are used, and then the less effective our antibiotics become for all the diseases for which they have value. Uh, this is a very, very serious problem in modern medicine. Um, and there are other issues as well. The more cruelly the animals are treated, uh, the more other drugs are used. All kinds of biocides are used in these environments. Um, pesticides, herbicides, insecticides um, of all kinds are used. It's a chemical um, farming. It's a chemical-based kind of uh, livestock production. And um, the results are that residues from those uh, toxic chemicals end up in the meats and dairy products, and for that matter, the eggs that people eat. So, again, you may not care about animals, but the more cruelly the animals are treated, the more toxic the, 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 the meat and the dairy products will be. Absolutely. Well, I think it's, it's funny, too, how people say, oh, well, you know, it tastes good. And I'm like, well, I bet we taste good over an open fire. <laughs> We're not going around eating each other, you know. So, you know, that's a funny stuff. And, and a lot of people like to scoff at the idea when people say, oh, well, these animals are so stressed and you're eating their stress. Okay, maybe that sounds hokey. However, from a, a purely chemical point of view, like when we're stressed, we release cortisol and all sorts of, of, of hormones and, and chemicals that are in our bodies 
and the animals do the same. So we're therefore ingesting that as well. Well, when it, you know, any, what we know in, in, in humans is that when a human mother uh, is stressed, if she's angry, upset, her milk, if she's breastfeeding a, 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 her, a baby, um, will convey the hormones, the stress hormones that she's releasing in her body that are coursing through her bloodstream will be in her milk. And the baby will get colic, the baby will get upset. Every, 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 almost every nursing mother experiences this. If she's calm, the baby's calm. Um, and yet we consume dairy products that come from cows who the conditions in which they live just are massively stressful on them. And, um, you know, if you are someone who hearkens to the, that old saying, um, let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me, um, yeah. I don't think that's hokey. I think that's a very genuine uh, uh, aspiration that people may have. We certainly need peace in this world, and we need peace in our hearts. We, we need emotional equanimity. All of us do. Does it help to be eating the dairy products or, or flesh from animals whose lives have been so frustrated, so full of violations of their basic needs uh, as to constitute a, a, a violation of the human-animal bond? Um, you know, it, we have a schizoid attitude towards animals in this culture. Mm. On the one hand, we, we, we call some animals pets, and we love them to bits, and, and we get so much in return. We name them, we feed them, we pay their vet bills, we take care of them. We, we often sleep with them, let them sleep on our beds, in our homes. Um, it's a beautiful cross-species connection that we have with, with um, our animals who, who, um, who are our companions, and, and in many cases, part of our families. We love them, and we get so much love in return. But then we call other animals dinner, and by virtue of that semantic distinction, we feel entitled to treat those other animals with any manner of cruelty so long as it lowers the price per pound. Mm. Um, there are laws against cruelty to animals in all 50 states. They vary state to state, but there, are, there, are, there, are, there is legislation of some degree in every state. And in every single state, all 50, the legislation that exists to uh, uh, prevent cruelty to animals exempts animals destined for human consumption. Literally, it, there's practices you could do if you did it to a dog or a cat, you'd be arrested and put in jail. But, they, but those practices are done every single day. There's standard operating procedure in, in the meat and dairy industries. Um, because they're, the, the legislation exempts the animals that we call dinner. And I, I just feel like we, we can do better. We, 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 sh we must do better uh, to be responsible people, to be accountable people. Again, this is why I say that this is not really an animal rights issue that I'm, I'm talking about right now. It, it's a human responsibility issue. And if we're going to um, if we're going to raise animals for meat and dairy consumption, if there, there are so, some people that want to buy that and feel they they'll be healthier if they do, those people should be able to get products from uh, animals who've been treated as humanely as as possible, who've been slaughtered as humanely as possible. But the industry 
it's, it, to an extraordinary extent, does not take into account the animal's well-being or welfare in the slightest in its calculations in its, as a part of its criteria and its decision-making. Yeah, well, you know, because it's such a business and the demand is so incredibly high, they don't they don't care. You know, it's the they bottom don't. line. They, they truly don't care. And unless we have legislation that forces them to, to or prohibits them from doing the most egregious things, they'll do them. Absolutely. And uh, if it's cost effective, they'll do it. They're 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 financial animals. They are not. Um, they're almost. You know, it's very interesting. You know, that's one of the reasons that I think vegetarianism or veganism is a great protest statement on behalf of life. Um, that that I'm not going to eat the flesh of an animal that's been treated sadistically. Um, I'm not going to pay someone, in effect, to do that. I'm not mm-hmm. going to pay people to pollute. I'm not going to spend my money giving it to people who've treated animals that way. Because when you buy something, you are in effect in a capitalist system saying to the, per- to the person you're buying it from or the company you're buying it from, do it again. Yeah, That is how your you. purchase will be interpreted. And uh, they will do it again. And we have to stop it. Yeah, agreed. So when you walked away from, from, uh, from your empire, your family's empire back then, what uh, what steps did you take to start making? You know, you you obviously had a passion for uh, for this this change and this uh, this new life that you were leading. When did you take that passion and make it a career and start putting pen to paper to write these books like Diet for a New America and Food Revolution? Well, I wrote Diet for a New America in the mid '80s, um, and I wrote um, Food Revolution in uh, 2000. Actually, uh, and then I th- then just very recently uh, I have come out with the 10th anniversary edition of of Food Revolution. Um, so that's the latest. Um, but but the these are books in which I express my my effort to to expose these industries and to to give people guidance that. It gives them balanced and accurate information about what is actually happening in these industries so that we can be conscious consumers. And I, I think most people do want to make informed choices. They do want to have as much knowledge about the food that they're eating as possible. They don't want to be victims of greenwashing. Mm-hmm. They don't want to be lied to. Um, at the very moment, the California Milk Producers Association has a really large uh, national ad campaign going um, called Great Cheese Comes from Happy Cows. Happy Cows Come from California. I hate they, those ads. <laughs> yeah, you've seen them. And they, they have these talking cows out in pastures and uh, saying things like, oh, how wonderful the, it is to be in California where the weather is warm. You know, those ads were filmed in Auckland, New Zealand, <laughs> <laughs> which is just part of the fabrication of it all. Um, California dairies... Um, you know, are unique actually amongst the states compared to, for example, to um, to Wisconsin. Um, they they're far less likely to ever see a blade of grass in their entire lives. Um, California dairies, uh, particularly the large ones in in the Central Valley and, and the San Joaquin Valley, are um, massive dry feedlots, and there's no grass to be found. That's not what's mm. happening there. Um, you know, it's an industry. It's tremendously polluting. 
uh, of the groundwater uh, of the state. Um, and then they, they, they come up with this, this ad campaign, Happy Cows Come from California. I wish you could see, as I have, um, the cows of the state of California. Now, there may be a few family farms left, a few, you know, someone that's got a few acres and a cow. And I'm not talking about that. That's not what, where commercial dairy products come from. They mm -hmm. come from these massive uh, industry sites um, with up to 20,000 cows. Um, and it's, um, it's, it's really, anybody who really can sense the feelings of, uh, of cows, and uh, it, it's a terrible place to be. The suffering is enormous. Yeah. And for them to say these are happy cows, it's just, um, well, happy Jews come from Auschwitz too, I suppose. <laughs> you're right. And, yeah. you know, uh, if you're if anyone who lives in, in at least uh, Southern California and is taking a road trip up to uh, Northern California and you're taking the five north, you drive by a massive farm, and I call it the cow parking lot. You smell it for miles. That's the that's Harris Ranch back. on I-5. It's, it's horrible. Uh, yeah, it's it's incredible. Uh, ironically, that 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 ranch it's owned by uh, Carol and Jay Harris. They're a huge thing, absolutely massive uh, enterprise. They have they they have the audacity to call some of their beef natural organic beef and it's sold in health food stores in the state if you watch for the, the name harris ranch harris ranch beef and you know it's coming from that very establishment on, on i-5 that you're describing and those cows and the cattle are just uh it's it's a, it's a nightmare yeah they're packed for in there like and for the environment it stinks, and the amount of, you know, in, in a natural situation where, where, where an animal is on the back 40 grazing, it, its waste drops onto the ground and gets rained into the ground and becomes nutrients, fertilizer, for, for the grasses that will grow the following year. Um, and there's a cycle to that. Um, but when you put animals in feedlots, miles from where their feed is grown, um, and concentrated in, in, in densities, stocking densities, um, that would never occur in nature. Um, you ha get accumulated piles of excrement, and instead of it being a, a, a nutrient and a fertilizer, it's a, it becomes a pollutant. There's no way to get it back economically to get it back to the land on which their feed is grown. So it's stored. There's various things done with it, all of them environmental disasters. It gets into mm -hmm. the groundwater, it gets into the air, it um, uh, becomes a terrible source of, um, of, of water pollution, um, and it, it ends up infecting uh, human beings with some very serious diseases. Yeah. Well, and it can't be good for them that they're sucking in all those fumes from all the trucks no, and cars going it, by on a daily basis. <laughs> no, it isn't. And, you know, one of the places where that particular issue of, 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 of respiratory illnesses and and, uh, uh, and, and, and animal waste uh, shows up is in pork production because uh, agribusiness uh, pork production involves warehouses in which these, these pigs are put in cages, um, very, very small, uh, and, and they're sometimes tiered, three high, 
and the excrement just falls down through the steel slats onto the floor below and just accumulates. And the ammonia and the hydrogen sulfide and the other noxious gases, of course, stay in the warehouse. It's, I've been in these places. It is, the, the olfactory sensation is absolutely overwhelming and absolutely nauseating. For me, and I'm a human being, I, my sense of smell is, is minimal It's compared to that of, of a pig um, whose who's ethmoidal cells, which are the ones which detect scent uh, that exist in the nose, they have 200 times the concentration of ethmoidal cells in their noses as we do, we human beings. Wow. Um, their, their sense of smell is, is greater than that of a bloodhound. Um, um, they can, in a natural situation, detect the scent of an edible root through the earth, and they'll root around and find it, but they know where it is because of their sense. Of, they're extremely uh, uh, developed um, sense of smell, and yet here they are in these cages with their own waste accumulating uh, in just ridiculous amounts, and, um, and, and they get respiratory illnesses. They get pneumonia, um, and uh, so a lot of them die. Uh, from it, but it's still cost-effective for the industry to do it that way. Mm. So, Terrible. you know, I, my revolt is against factory farming. It's, mm. it's against this what's called CAFOs, concentrated animal feeding operations, in which, and this is what, well, this is what livestock production has become in this. Modern meat production, this is what it is. And people talk about, well, what about free-range eggs, and what about... Um, grass-fed beef, and, well, those are interesting things to talk about, but you have to realize that they represent much less than 1% of the supply in the country today. So uh, we can talk about them, but I would much rather talk about the elephant in the living room than mm -hmm. the, the little fly on the, on, the, on the wall, and that's the size comparison. Uh, the elephant is this enormous, enormous... Uh, violation of the human-animal bond, this enormous cruelty to animals, this enormous environmental nightmare that is uh, modern meat production. So what is your new book, The New Good Life, about? Is it kind of it's a... It's about conscious a consumption. It's hmm. about, well, the subtitle is Living Better Than Ever in an Age of Less. Uh, hmm. Because I think, you know, more than we realize, our prosperity, our economy, our long food supply chains have been built on cheap oil. And it's never really been as cheap as it looked, but the industry has been able to externalize the costs uh, onto the environment, um, uh, into our, uh, our um, military. Um, and, uh, but the, the, the day of cheap oil is running out. Um, and whether it's next week or next year or five years, it's inevitable that um, that we're going to have to base our prosperity somewhere else. We're going to have to develop uh, renewable, non-polluting sources of energy that don't require us to be dependent on um, other nations uh, who hate us um, and <laughs> fear. Um, we, we really need to develop our own uh, sources of energy that don't pollute. Um, we had this terrible um, disaster in the Gulf of Mexico this summer, uh, summer um, with the BP oil spill. I don't think the the damage that that was that that, that caused is is anywhere yet recognized fully. Um, 
water. It's hard to see. BP doesn't want people to see it because mm-hmm. um, the, the legal and financial implications of that company could bankrupt that company if, if they were really called to task for it, if they really were forced to pay for the damage that they did. Um, but that's just frankly just one most recent example of the, the pollution that the oil industry causes. Um, and we need to get away from it, and we need to, to develop ways of living that uh, um, use a lot less of that type of energy. So, uh, and we're going to, whether we like it or not, we're going to have to. So uh, I wrote um, The New Good Life to give people sound footing on, on how to build a prosperous and, and thriving life um, uh, without so much dependence on um, um, uh, polluting sources of energy. So what you do and you've been doing is pretty much a family affair, whether it's the veganism aspect, the eco aspect, and I know that your son Ocean is also very vocal and active in the movement as well. What was it like to raise your child as a conscious kid? Was it, was it tough? Uh, did he like it, or did he finally find his own voice and say, yeah, you're right, Dad? Oh, well, Ocean is a very unique person, and uh, I, I – Dale and I met. Dale was his, his mom. Um, we've been we've been together 44 years, and wow. uh, we won the lottery when we got Ocean. That's all I can say. I, I, <laughs> I don't think it's it's representative of what a lot of parents go through. Um, Ocean is the finest human being I think I've ever known. I, I, he's just an extraordinarily thoughtful, kind, loving, patient, aware, powerful, beautiful man. Um, and he's he's taken my work and expanded it and and taken it to other areas. Um, and uh, at this moment, he is in um, uh, Jordan um, facilitating an event in the Middle East. He does this work a lot. Uh, young leaders from Israel and from many Arab nations, I think 20 Arab nations, come together to and they and he facilitates these groups because both sides mm-hmm. trust him. Wow, um, he's done incredible work um, uh, around the issues of racism in this country, um, and he's gotten a lot of awards to rec- that in recognition of his work. Um, Ocean is the most uh, clear human being I think I've ever known, and I, so again, I, raising him was a joy. <laughs> I kept just being amazed at his uh, wisdom and his clarity and his uh, integrity. And um, I love him dearly. Um, I miss him at the moment. Whenever he goes over to the Middle East, there's a part of me that's a little concerned because he's mm. at the forefront. He's on the edge of a lot of things there, and it's not entirely safe. Um, but if I asked him to put safety first at all times and not you know, follow his heart and risk, take some risks on behalf of his, his, his uh, life purpose, that would not be the kind of parent I want to be. You know, young people have their destinies. Not all of their destinies, of course, are as as grand as ocean seems to be. But every young person, each one of us, uh, has a destiny, has a, a has gifts inside us. We are are here to give, and gifts from others that we are here to receive. And uh, as a parent, it's not our jo- our job to 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 shape entirely. We we want to give some give support and guidance, of course, and and underlying principles, of course. But then how that particularly as they get older, how they choose to express that, uh, that has to be their choice and calling. 
Mm. And so we, we give our, our whole hearts, we love them with our whole hearts, we do everything we can for them, and then we let them go. Mm. Let them be who they are. I think your next book should be a parenting book then. <laughs> well, I have a feeling that Ocean and I may write a book together at some point, actually. Yeah, but, I think uh, it's an interesting dynamic. Yeah, it's amazing. And, and uh, I was, he's just a great, great, great person. I love him. I respect him. I learn from him all the time. Uh, we have our differences. We do disagree at times. Um, but uh, that's fine. But that's actually mutually enriching. Mm. Um, and um, I get to learn from him as, as, as much, every bit as much, more than I, I think that I am a teacher to him. That's excellent. So just before we wrap, I want to know from you, since uh, we're upon the holiday season where overconsumption is uh, – off the charts, if yeah. you have any healthy or eco-holiday tips that you'd like to share with our listeners. Well, you know, with Thanksgiving coming up, I have always celebrated Thanksgiving in a different way than the dominant culture does. Um, I have heard it described as Turkey Day. Mm-hmm. And I always raise a question when I hear that. I said, no, 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 it's not Turkey Day. It's Thanksgiving. It's a day of, to express and feel our gratitude. You know, now some people do that by by eating turkey, but that's it. I don't do that. Um, I I do it often by I actually take the day to, I fast on that day. I guess it's my way of of kind of protesting the the people who are pigging out and gorging themselves and eating way too much for their own health or well being. And what I do is, and I just take the money that I would have would have spent on food had I eaten, and and I give it to some hunger relief organization. And there are many, many, of course, that, that, that are doing great work. So that's just a little personal statement. And I do give thanks. And I make a list. I sit down and I read all the things I'm thankful for personally, all the things I'm thankful for in our world, the people. I'm, I, I call people and tell them how thankful I am that they're in my life and in my heart, I, you know, and in our world. And I tell them I'm, what I'm thankful about that, that they're doing. You know, thank them for the good work they're doing and the caring that they're expressing and the families that they're raising. And, the, and I just give thanks in as many ways as I can. I, I think that's what Thanksgiving is about. And I, I you know, but of course it's been commercialized. Mm. So we, we take Christmas and we make it into this massive orgy of spending. You know, and people go into debt and buy stuff they don't need, and it's a, it's a, we make it into a consumer uh, extravaganza instead of a moment to contemplate at, the, at very close to the winter solstice, this a very deep spiritual truth. Uh, there's so many ways that our culture has gone awry and become about consumption, and and un, we've made we've made excess into a status symbol. And we're paying a price for that. One of the reasons I wrote the new good life really is to try to correct it. The, the old good life is shop till the planet drops. The old good life is more, more, more. It's consume, consume, consume. Uh, and the new good life is much more elegant, uh, much more refined, much more beautiful, uh, much less expensive, much less polluting, um, much more nurturing and joyful. Agreed. And I think with this past economic crisis and one that I believe we're still in, people are starting to realize that on their well, own. They are, and, and people are realizing they need to, to get off the, the debt cycle and the consumption cycle because it's, it's, it's not affordable. 
it never really was, but that, that fact is becoming blatantly obvious to more and more people, and painfully so. Um, mm. but, but I wrote The New Good Life to give people a guide and, and, and solid ground on which they can walk into the coming economy, the, the economy that really is starting to develop, which is very different from what we've known before, um, and, and, and thrive. Excellent. Well, where can we find more about you, um, your books, upcoming speaking tours? I Just do have John a website. Robbins info. Yeah, I mm-hmm. do have a website. It is johnrobbins.info. John Robbins, and Robbins has two Bs, uh, .info. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, John. You're a wealth of information and knowledge and, and fun banter. I, I love a lot of the things you had to say today, and uh, I'm so honored that we were able to make it on the show. Thank you, Carolyn. Everybody stay with us because after the break, I will be chatting with Louis Sahoyas from the Oceanic Preservation Society. All right, this next question is for Caroline. Caroline, if you take the bus 60 miles to school at 5.30 a.m. and the bus is traveling at an average of 30 miles per hour, how are you going to get to your prenatal appointment and still make it to homeroom on time? Some students are tackling more than just their schoolwork, which is why more than 30% of them aren't graduating. But you can give them the boost they need to make it through by visiting BoostUp.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Army and the Ad Council. Thanks for coming back to Healthy Voyager Radio. My next guest keeps fabulous company. Working with the Oceanic Preservation Society, not only do they do great work in saving our seas, but they also produce Academy Award-winning documentaries like The Cove. With me now is Louis Sahoyas. Hello, Louis. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Excellent. Well, tell us a little bit about the Oceanic Preservation Society. Oh, boy. It started about five years ago, and the idea was uh, actually came to me along with Jim Clark, my dive buddy. Uh, Jim, Jim Clark is a, a guy I met when I used to work at Fortune magazine in my other life. I, I used to photograph people that made too much money, and Jim was one of them. <laughs> he, uh, he was a serial entrepreneur. He started three companies from scratch, Silicon Graphics, Netscape, WebMD, and he, you know we've been diving around the world together for about the last 12 years now. And, you know, we were going to beautiful places, and it's like the, the second or third time you come, you go back to places like the Galapagos or Cocos, but you can't help but notice that there's, there's less fish, sharks, everything is disappearing. And we saw a long-lying fisherman in a marine sanctuary in the Cocos, and Jim said, somebody should do something about this. And I said, well, you know, how about you and I? You know, I was a photographer for, you know, National Geographic and Fortune, and I thought, well, let's just make films. And we'll try to create awareness and, you know, inspire hope in people to see these movies to try to change things, what's going on. And, you know, Jim has hit it out of the park so many times with business. And when he was in college, he helped send man to the moon. And I think invigorated by his success, I felt like, you know, uh, worthy to, you know, maybe with his help to help, you know, step up to the plate and do something to give back like he has done. So that, you know, that was really the genesis, so, you know, two guys sitting around watching the, the oceans disappear before their eyes and trying to make, a, you know, try to try to make a, uh, it's, a it's a nonprofit company. I told Jim, you know, we're not going to make a billion dollars off this. And he said, that's all right. He said, just make a difference. And that's what we're trying to do, make a difference through film to inspire people to change the oceans, try to fix things. Sounds like a radical sabbatical, you guys <laughs> leaving your... Uh... Your your corporate worlds and uh, and going out there and helping helping the earth now. 
Yeah, no, it, it really. I mean, I think uh, you know, to, to be quite honest, it was it was you know Jim's, uh, you know Jim's money and my sweat equity. You know, for the last couple of years, I haven't been, been paid a dime for what I'm doing. But I'm, you know, I feel like I'm the richest guy in the world now because of all the. I don't know. I feel like a, you know, after you achieve a certain amount in your life, I mean, I'm not a, a wealthy guy, but I feel like you know I have enough where I can sit back and say, you know what, en- enough's enough. Let's just you know, it's not about me trying to get personally wealthy. It's about trying to leave the planet a little bit better place than I found it, as good, as good of a place as we found it. You know, it's, I mean, that's I say that, and I think it's it's just such a tall order. I mean, the place, the world is actually you know declining, you know, environmentally. Even though there's been so many more activists that have been spawned up since, let's say, since Rachel Carson, you know, each generation is adapting to this diminishment. Um, you know, the oceans when I put my head in the water 35 years ago don't look like they did now. And you know, my my grandfather will say if he would have, my father if he would have been a diver, would have seen the same kind of changes. And you know, you, if, if you put your head in the water now as a kid, you think, oh, this is beautiful, this is great, and it is, but. It's not what it was. It's like a, yeah. it, it's it's declining, and what we're trying to do is just you know create the awareness of this decline and try to you know create the changes, these huge changes that are necessary to to stop it. Absolutely. So, what types of services and programs and projects do you find yourself involved with? I know you guys do all sorts of things when it comes to the oceans. Well, we, we partner with a lot of people that are doing great things, like, you know, Monterey Bay Aquarium doing a seafood watch guide. I mean, if you're going to eat seafood, you want to make it sustainable and and uh, make sure that you're not eating anything toxic. So, you know, we partner with people that are doing great things. You know, we, we feel like film is really our repertoire, film and photography. Uh, you know, film I call a weapon of mass construction. You know, you, you drop a bomb, you kill people, you, you make a film, you can create these allies that... Um, you know that all over the world, the people have seen the cove, and it's not the, the cove is not just this film about about dolphins getting abused. The film is really about you know a microcosm of what we're all doing to the oceans, and the film has inspired uh, millions of people all around the world to take action, and that's what's exciting about it to see that you can have this, you know, I hate to say it, but a noble idea, and mm. it and it and it catches it catches uh, you know like uh, this torch gets passed over from. You know, I'm looking out at my home now in my studio where OPS is headquarters. It's, it's 100 feet away. And every every day that I walk from my house to my studio when I was making this film, I thought, I could be delusional. I never made a film before. You know, <laughs> it makes me think that people are going to see it. And then I see all this, this, you know, this, uh, and how it affects people, you know, all around the world. And that's, that's the exciting part, that you can have this, this uh, you know, this idea that happens, you know, that, that I, I assume everybody has this idea. You know, everybody has noble intentions. And, you know, everybody wants to leave the place a little bit better for their kids. But, you know, a lot of just not so many people act on it. Right. But when you do, it's very inspirational. You know, we're really inspired around here by that Margaret Mead quote that says, uh, you know, a few thoughtful people can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing I'd ever have. And, you know, we see that all There's evidence of it all over, you know, in our emails all around the world. So it's it's quite inspirational. Absolutely. So how did the opportunity come about for you to make this film, seeing as how you said you'd never made a film before? How did it just uh, go from the, a germ of an idea to where it's at now? Well, you know, I've been dabbling around in film for, uh, say, let's say, five or six years before I started making The Cove. And Jim, my buddy Jim Clark had seen some of the results, and he said, well, you know, let's, let's try to, you know, 
make a go with this. Let's try to, you know, use your, you know, wonderful eye and storytelling to tell bigger, more complex stories. And that was that was really it. And you know, we just when we started out making the Cove, um, nobody on the team had made a film before. You know, the jo- the joke on our on our when we went to the Cove was, uh, you know, we're all professionals, just not at this. And you know, we had, to, you know, we had, you know, I said we, you know, we didn't, we didn't need filmmakers to make the code. We needed pirates. So we, you know, we had, a, you know, an, an unusual band of people that were making a film. A buddy of mine, Charles Hamilton, became our director of covert operations at the time. He was working for Pirates of the Caribbean. He was teaching Hollywood pirates how to look like real pirates for the movie. And I said, Charles, I need a real pirate to help us break into the cove. And so he's the first person I hired. And we started gathering this, these people, like you know. George, I met uh, you know some people at Kerner Optical, which is George Lucas's firm. They made you know the, all the the, the actual uh, what do you say like, like the non-computer graphic props for movies, oh, mm-hmm. and they made the, the you know these fake rocks that we had hit high def cameras in. We had world champion freedivers set the you know set the hydrophones and underwater cameras. Uh, we had a you know ex-military guy you know for the Canadian Air Force make these blimps and you know with the cameras below them that were, you know, remote controlled and gyro stabilized. We had, a, you know, a lot of creative people that were working with us, but none of them with film experience. And film experience was almost like secondary at that point. And then, mm-hmm. you know, we had some really talented people help us put the film together after we came back with the, what became sort of the guts of the film, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Fisher Stevens and Paula Dupre, um, you know, were producers, really great people, creative people. Jeff Richman, you know, the editor, amazing. You know, the, the film's the, the first film in documentary history to sweep all the guilds. And, it's a, you know, I didn't do that by myself. But if, if there's any talent I brought to it, it's by bringing people more talented than me into the project. Yeah, for sure, definitely. And you had a lot of brave people. Yeah. Seeing as I, how you had to go through, uh, see what you, you saw firsthand. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, just one one foot in front of the other. When I when I look at the film now, I get all that fear comes back to me. It's kind of it's been a few years now since we've you know put the you know been to Taiji, you know, with the film. The bulk of the film was shot, but when I see the film now, it's like, oh my god, it's like another person shot it because it was so, uh, you know, I get scared again. But if I forget, you know, you forget the fear because now it's just about trying to get the people to see the movie and mm. and get to the, get to make the next movie. What kind of obstacles did you face when making the film? Did you, obviously you put together a fantastic team, um, but did you face any any trouble as far as distribution or trying to really get it out there or any naysayers? Was there any, what were uh, what were the biggest problems that you had? Well, you know, people would say, well, first of all, I mean, I, I never, you know, I, I was, initially we were just hoping to get the film into Sundance. We thought, well, maybe if we get into Sundance, we could get distribution. And then, you know, I had paid for the crew to come to Sundance and just, you know, sort of witness if the film did well, that they, they would be there. And I, I try to get us all out of town as quickly as possible because we have this, you know, we're paying for houses and, you know, transportation and everything, get everybody out as soon as possible. Somebody said, aren't you going to stick around for the awards? And I said, what awards? I, I thought getting in the, the festival was the award. He said, oh, no, we're giving out, you know, we, they give out awards on Saturday night. And then we ended up winning, you know, the, the most coveted award, the, the audience award. And then... um I don't know. Then people said, "Well, yeah, it's it's great to win a, you know, to, to win at Sundance, but you you know, you really need to have the film get distributed. But it's never going to get distributed in Japan, so you know, nice try." 
It's like, you know, that kind of, you know, negative naysaying is kind of what I brought, was brought up on. My mom always saying, oh, you're not good enough. You're not, you know, you can't do it. You know, so I know some people out there in the audience, they have parents that tell them they can do anything. My parents mm. weren't like that. <laughs> so I, I come from this, uh, you know, but that, but that to me was sort of like catnip. It's like, anyway, anyway the, the film got dis- you know, distributed in, in Japan. It was a limited release, like most docs, but, you know, we ended up selling out theaters. It was, a, you know, an impossible ticket to get to on the weekends. And, you know, now we're going on to DVD, and uh, everybody in Japan knows about The Cove. Uh, we we had these major right wing groups, which it's hard to describe in America. We don't have anything. The closest that we have to it is probably the KKK and Nazis. You know, um, no, seriously, they 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 will show up at our they showed up at our distributor's home. They would open up the front door and start screaming at them with megaphones. They would uh, have these shout trucks that they, they're called. They have these you know like these thousand watt speakers, and they wow. blare uh, so, you know call the, the distributors wife a whore, they would tell where the children went to school, they tried to embed wow. to do this. This would happen until the police came. This happened three times. And then we you know, we paid uh, twenty five thousand dollars to get um you know, these restraining orders on on these these guys to you know, to to stop going to our distributor's home and to his business and to the theaters. And what happened was uh after we won the Academy Award and we got distribution in Japan uh and then these theaters started to close down and say, we're not going to show the cove, you know, because it's, we don't want these shout trucks in front of us. We don't want to, you know, to have this attention. Yeah. And then, then, yeah. this is, then this inspired a bunch of directors, writers, actors, and, you know, creatives in, in Japan to come to our defense. This was without our, our doing. We didn't inspire them. They just sort of spontaneously got together and said, what is it about our country that we can't allow uh, Academy Award winning film be seen that it looks like it's negative about our country. Can't we turn an eye on ourselves? And um, then this created this whole free speech debate in Japan that was incredible. Our detractors had unwittingly created a marketing campaign that we couldn't have invented or paid for with $100 million. So <laughs> it, it, uh, you know, it was just, you know, and it became this bigger thing. It was about free speech as well. So the, the code probably has more, uh, I don't know, I'd say awareness in Japan than Avatar does at this moment. Wow. Yeah, they guess their plan backfired. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Thank <laughs> God. <you know. laughs> so what was your experience like? I know you said that you guys uh, sweep all the Guild Awards, but what was it like to not only be nominated for Academy Award, but to win it? What was that like for you guys? Well, you know, it's hard to to get – I mean, listen, I, you know, I do get excited about winning an award, but it really, the, the, the part that I like about winning anything is it, it gives you a chance to talk to more people, reach more people. And that's mm-hmm. the important thing. It's not about the awards. It's about, you know, that's, that's hopefully the collateral uh, that happens on the way to solving the issues. Um, you know, when you do a documentary, most documentaries, the good ones, I think, are, I don't know, we're all sort of driven by this desire to, you know, to make the world a little bit better place. You know, mm-hmm. most movies, you know, most, most feature movies are $10 in a box of popcorn. It's all about the money. You know, the, the, you know, the distributors are just trying to get butts and seats. What I'm trying to do is, you know, win hearts and minds in the, you know, the, in the best, you know, best meaning of the words. And that's what's important to me, you know, the change. You know, you want to get, have people go to the movie and they're going from point A to point B. And you're taking, you know, it's, a, it's like a, most movies to me are, 
a roller coaster. You just sort of go up and down, and it doesn't really feed your brain. When I read a, a novel or a you know a nonfiction book, I want to be changed. I want to you know be different. I want to feed my, my my brain and my heart with information to get to another plane. And I think you know a good doc can do that. And I guess that's what you know. If anything, the awards are a vindication of the original idea of let's just make a movie, like Jim says, that's just gonna gonna make a difference. And you know, hopefully, you know, the awards are a, an extension of that. Are there any more films in the works? I know you said that's kind of what you found to be the most uh, important part of OPS, or at least what's helped push the message more. You guys have any more films going on? Yeah, we're working on one right now. We've been on it for about researching it for about a year. Um, it's this, it's called this is the working title is called the Singing Planet, and the premise there is just about everything's been singing, everything from insects up to blue whales, everything's been singing. We just haven't been listening. And there's we've been working with a, a researcher, Chris Clark, who uh, works at the Cornell Bioacoustical Laboratory, and they what they do is he works at this place where they they've been recording for. Uh, animal sounds for, you know, since the 1930s. It's a big, huge library of animal sounds. And it's just, when you hear these sounds, you think, ah, some of them are so beautiful and complex, you think they'd have to be done by a synthesizer and a computer. And when you hear these songs, and you realize that these, these voices are being extinguished. You know, we're going through what scientists are now calling the, the sixth major extinction. There's been, been five major extinctions in the history of the planet, you know, the Rhodesian Devonian, the Permian, the Triassic Jurassic, and the KT, the Cretaceous Tertiary, the one that killed the dinosaurs 65 million years ago. We're going through one right now, but it's caused by humanity. And mm. when I heard this, I thought, my God, this is, this is, a, you know, this is a huge story. We're talking about half the species on the planet may be going extinct by the end of the century if we don't change the path that we're on. And that's what the movie's about, you know. The the the, the singing the singing the singing plan is really kind of a Trojan horse of a title. The movie's really about extinction, but we want to give it hope. And you know, once you hear these voices, you realize that they're going away. Then mm. you know that hopefully people, you know, you need to get people emotionally carried away with your story to get them to care. You know, there's, you can you know to say we're we're killing half the species on the planet. Most people will go, you know, that's too bad, but so what. And, you know, so what, though, is that, you know, we're all connected from the smallest mm -hmm. thing, living organism, to the, to the largest. You know, you think of plankton in the ocean. You think, oh, well, you know, you can't even see them. Yet your life depends on them. You know, to, plankton produce two out of every three breaths you take. You know, plankton generates far more oxygen than all the land plants in all the world. And we're losing plankton. We lost about 30 to 40 percent of it since the industrial age because we're making the oceans more acidic, making it harder for that carbon, you know, the carbonic shell to develop on these, these small creatures in the ocean. That's depending on our lives. When the small things start to go in the ecosystem, that's when you have to really worry. You know, we think of big sure. things like humans are, are important, but it's really the small things. You need, you need bees. You need plankton. You need... You know, microbes you need the things that you can't see. When they start to go, when they start to go, that's when you really have to worry. And I think now is the time to to start you know, making a film that's going to raise the awareness and inspire people to change. Definitely, definitely. Well, how can folks listening get involved with OPS and its many projects, or uh, even help out getting these films off the ground? Well, uh, our main website is opsociety.org. That's Oscar Peter OP Society dot org, and you know we don't, we don't, we're not an organization that really collects memberships. We don't like solicit like you know 
money for and you know get, get people to get people involved. We're really making making films. If they go to the website, they want to help out with the code. Please sign the petition. We have almost two million people that have signed on now. I think we might be over two million. Now. We're right at that cusp. Um, but you know, it's end, end of the year. You know, these uh, to keep the lights on around here. We we need donations. That's very helpful. I think we you know we're doing. I think the most important story of our time right now. You know, the mass extinction event. So if, if people want to help out, um, look at the website. If there's something that inspires you, you know, just take action. We'll 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 show you how to do it. Very cool. Very. I think it might be a good holiday gift to uh, give a donation in the name of somebody else as a gift. Well, absolutely. You know, it's a, the the OPS crew. We're not a big organization. You know, the, everybody you know that works for us can fit into a Mini Cooper, and uh, <laughs> so it's a, you know, there's not a lot of overhead around here. So it's a, you know, all the all the money we're going to be seeing up on the screen. So and, and we're, we're doing the next movie in 3D. We've we've already started doing it. We've been filming in uh, Tonga and Nui in the South Pacific, and uh, it's going to be gorgeous. It's going to be absolutely beautiful and riveting and i think unlike the code it's not going to have this it'll have a you know it'll have an important message but it's not going to have the scene in it that's like the code that's so graphic that it turns people away um mm. you know that said i do want people to see the code because it's a you know it's it has this reputation of being like this you know oh this movie you can't see you know i love animals too much people is the common note that people say but you know, we we used a lot of the same principles that Alfred Hitchcock did when, in his movies. We you know we use your imagination, and if you look at the really you know the dark scene of the cove, the the, the dolphins getting you know getting killed, most the best scenes in that it's all in your head. You you're imagining more than you're actually seeing, and I think we we did we almost did too good of a job on it because people think oh my god it's horrible, but if you actually analyze it shot by shot, like if you looked at Hitchcock's Psycho, you know, the shower scene in Psycho, you never see the perpetrator and the victim in the same frame. Yet you think you right. saw this murder. And, you know, it's the same thing in the cove. You never see, a, you know, the dolphin and, the, and the, you know, the hunters actually spearing the dolphin. There's always water between you. You're hearing more than you're actually seeing. So it's a – anyway, see the cove if you haven't seen it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I, I definitely recommend it. And, and you're right. It's, uh, it's more than seeing it on film. That it evokes so much more emotion hearing it, and yeah, it's it's very well done. Well, thank you, appreciate it. And that's why you got the Oscar. Look at that. <laughs> <laughs> so, outside of uh, this this new film you're working on, uh, what else is the Oceanic Preservation Society working on? Um, any new partnerships or anything in the next year to come? Oh, uh, we're working on them right now. Um, we want to work with a lot of or- NGOs. So, if there's anybody from an NGO there, you know, non-government organization that you know works working in environmental issues or um, animal rights issues, I mean, this is the film to to endorse and get behind. We really want to develop a broad spectrum of constituents. You know, people from you know last time, last film we had, you know, Greenpeace and NRDC, National Resources Defense Council, and you know, Monterey Bay Aquarium, et cetera, et cetera, helping us out. We want to get a, a really broad base because this is the kind of movie that affects us all. And mm-hmm. so if there's any partners out there, that, you know, potential partners that are listening out there, you know, please please give us a buzz. We're on the, we're, you know, Oceanic Preservation Society. You'll find us on the on the web. And, and what's uh, that we, site again? What's the website uh, again? It's the same one, opsociety.org. And, Perfect. Um, you know, we're... Another project that we we're working on is we've built the best underwater still camera in the world. It's a basically an underwater view camera uh, with a 65 megapixel back, so 
we can make pictures that are really huge. And what we're doing is we're going around to the best preserved reefs in the world and filming them before they disappear because they are disappearing. And so we're, you know, we go there with this, this camera and we dive with rebreathers and you know, up to a dozen lights and we light these reefs like, like jewel boxes like they are. So you see more detail in a, in a photograph than you'll ever see with your eye because it's such a, you know, a keen resolving power of this lens and this camera. So that's the other project we're working on. Well, you got your hands full, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, was, speaking of having your hands full, I'm really glad you were able to make it on the show. I know we've been trying to trying to work it all out, and I'm glad you were able to make it because uh, this is a film that, if for those folks who still haven't seen it, I've been dying to get you guys on the show to uh, to really discuss it and uh, and get the word out even more. All right. Well, thanks very much. I'm glad it finally worked out. Yeah, thank you. Everybody, don't go anywhere. We will be right back. And now we have an eight-year-old on the line. Welcome to our world today. What's your question? Our continents make up 29% of the Earth's surface, meaning that 71% is comprised of water. Man automatically adapts to environmental conditions. So why do I need to take swimming lessons? Are you ready for kids who eat healthy? Good nutrition can lead to great things. To find out how a healthy lifestyle can help your child succeed, go to MyPyramid.gov. Brought to you by the Ad Council and USDA. All right, that's another wrap for Healthy Voyager Radio. Be sure to visit johnrobbins.info as well as thecovemovie.com and opsociety.org. That's opsociety.org for more information on what these great people are working on um, as far as books, speaker uh, tours, movies, projects, volunteer stuff, all that wonderful uh, stuff going on that they're working on and that you could possibly get involved in. Uh, as for me, of course, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Healthy Voyager on Facebook. Just look up the Healthy Voyager and you'll find uh, the fan page. Uh, YouTube, check out the channel. But, of course, HealthyVoyager.com has everything you need and more. There's recipes, especially up this upcoming holiday season. There's going to be plenty of that. Um, travel information, travel stories, green stories, uh, giveaways, uh, product reviews, all that stuff, including social networking uh, of your own. You can build your own profile on HealthyVoyager.com and meet other folks. And if you subscribe to the weekly newsletter, you are the first to get the information that comes out that week as well as special offers, deals, and coupons. So be sure to sign up for the newsletter. And uh, yeah, videos, the radio show, everything's available there. I'd like to thank John Robbins and Louis Sahoyas one more time for all of their great info today. Be sure to check out the podcast of today's show as well as past shows on HealthyVoyager.com as well as on iTunes where you can subscribe and never miss a show. Be sure to join me next week for our Thanksgiving show as I welcome eco-holiday maven Anna Getty. She's going to get us ready for healthy and green holidays, so don't miss it. And before we head out, I'm going to play us out with a song by another very talented veggie, Joss Stone. The British gal with the soulful voice has been on the scene for some time now, and each album just gets better and better. Uh, you can check her out at jossstone.com. That's J-O-S-S stone.com. All right. Thank you so much for joining me again today. Have a great weekend and talk to you next week with just two more shows left before we take a holiday break. We're going to be doing a Thanksgiving show and then taking a break uh, the week of Thanksgiving 
and the show after that will be our holiday gift guide show and then we're off um, for a little while for the holidays and uh, there you have it so enjoy this early fun holiday song I'm sure it's in line with everything a holiday that's out already it's a holiday song by Miss Joss Stone all I want for Christmas is you bye me.